Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The Connecticut House and the General Assembly was supposed to vote on a new two-year budget today, but that's not happening. Coming up, the editor-in-chief of ctnewsjunkie.com, Christine Stewart, will join us to tell us why the budget impasse at the state capitol is lingering well into the summer. How is the failure of state lawmakers to vote on a budget impacting your town, your city, your job? We want to hear from you. That's later. But first, the Civilian Conservation Corps. You've most likely heard of this group or at least noticed their work at a state park or while on a trail. The Great Depression-era work crew lasted for almost 10 years under President Franklin D. Roosevelt. East Hampton resident and author Marty Potscotch has written a book about the Connecticut men who worked in the program at a time when it was difficult to find a job. Have you thought about the work of the Civilian Conservation Corps when you're outdoors? Did you have a family member who worked in the CCC? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome into the studio Marty Podscotch, again, a historian, an East Hampton resident, and author of his latest book, Connecticut Civilian Conservation Corps Camps, History, Memories, and Legacy of the CCC. Marty, welcome to the show. Uh, great to be here. How did you get involved in all of this? I first got involved with the Civilian Conservation Corps when I was doing research on uh, books about the Adirondack fire towers. Uh, And somebody uh, had some pictures about the CCC boys working in the Adirondack. So after I finished a book on the Catskills and two volumes on the uh, northern and southern uh, fire towers of the Adirondacks, I decided I was going to go from the men and women who were up in the fire tower watching for smoke and trying to slow down the fires or put out the fires to now the men who built up our forests uh, during the uh, 1930s. Now, I mentioned the CCC was part of the New Deal program under President Roosevelt. You're a historian. Tell us again what was the thrust of this program and how easily was it created back in 1933? Uh, It was easily uh, done because he did have control of both the House and the Senate, and he proposed it on March 27th to both the House and the Senate, and four days later it passed both the House and the Senate. And it was one of the many alphabet uh, programs that he proposed uh, to Congress and Senate and that were passed very quickly. And he wanted, he told Congress, I want 250,000 boys working in our state forest national parks by July 1st. And he chose the Army to be able to uh, provide food, clothing, and shelter to these uh, young boys. And uh, he had the Department of Labor uh, check to see what families in each of the towns and the states that needed uh, help that were on relief. Uh, Most of these boys, too, had to quit school, most of them by eighth grade, because they had to uh, find money to help 
their parents. Many of their fathers uh, either were out of work completely or maybe one day a week, and uh, they had to help. So they quit school, and uh, this was a big uh, uh, help to mm-hmm. families because the boys got paid a dollar a day. Uh, they did not keep the $30 a month, but $25 went straight home to the parents. That was and a lot of money in 1933. That was a lot of money. And uh, and they had $5 for spending money. But they had food, clothing, shelter, and medical care provided by the Army. And they signed up for a six-month period of time. And they could stay up to uh, two years. Now, you keep mentioning the boys, the so-called CCC boys. Who was exactly eligible for this? The boys would have to be single and out of school and uh, need of, they were from families that needed help. Then they were boys, supposedly you had to be 18 to 25, but there are quite a few boys who lied about their age. And one boy uh, in, uh, in New York State, he said, Marty, my father fell off a roof of, uh, of the company and he couldn't work anymore. So uh, I went upstairs into my uh, bedroom, got my birth certificate, and they had a thing called ink eradicator. <laughs> it was sort of like uh, peroxide, and he changed the date so that he was now 18 years old, but he was only 14 years old, and he signed up and worked in the battlefield, Saratoga, uh, cleaning that up, and then went out to Utah. So uh, they had to help their families. Now, we're going to hear from some of these uh, so-called CCC boys. Uh, one uh, West Hartford resident who's 102 years old, we'll hear from him in just a little bit. But I mentioned a little bit earlier about uh, the idea that when you go to uh, some of the state parks around the state, or even if you travel around the country, you may have seen the work of the CCC and not realized it. Tell us, if you, as we go through the state of Connecticut, some of the places where they did their work. Uh, some of the places would be just right where I live in East Hampton, uh, Salmon River. Then you could do the hiking in Portland, um, Ashamasic State Forest. Then if you go way up to the northwestern part, you've got Kent, Connecticut, Kent Falls. Uh, then um, down toward Killingworth, you've got uh, Chatfield Hollow State Park, which is gorgeous. That was one of the first mm-hmm parks that was built and this is one of the places too we would like to uh, raise money to uh, uh, create a statue to honor the work of the CCC boys. Then you go to um, up towards Union they have um, state parks up there and my brain is not working (laughs) too well Uh, but the Natchog River to Natchog State Forest all these uh, places for um, fishing and hiking. So when you're at these state parks, you may be on a trail they helped uh, create, or you'll see a building they helped build, or a bridge. Um, tell us a little bit more. You mentioned Chatfield Hollow. That's one of my favorite state parks in, in Killingworth. When you walk uh, to the water mill, you can see a lot of the work that they did there. And one of the biggest things they did was take this small stream going through this valley and uh, over about two years, they built this huge dam that uh, holds back the water and created a beautiful uh, swimming area and also fishing area and ca- uh, places for uh, picnics along the, the, the banks. And there is also one building left. 
and it is a museum, a nature museum, right along the banks, and that's where we would like to erect a statue there. We have, our goal is 24,000, and we're at about 9,000 now. This is where we live. I'm speaking with Marty Podscotch, a historian, lives in East Hampton, an author of several books. His latest, Connecticut Civilian Conservation Corps Camps, the History, Memories, and Legacy of the CCC. Uh, they also planted a lot of trees, the CCC, around the country. Um, you're mentioning the work here in Connecticut. There were 21 camps uh, when the program started? Yes, there were 21 camps total. And by the end of 1933, there were 15 camps uh, throughout the state. And they, uh, first of all, the boys lived in tents in July, and some of them even started before July 1st. So the boys lived in these army tents, and uh, they would then hire local carpenters to build the approximately 15 buildings. You had five barracks, and each camp had 200 men in it. So you had about 40 boys in each barracks, and they also elected uh, or the, were selected uh, a boy in that barracks that would be the leader. So he would get $45 a month. And he had to keep him in line, make sure the boys were up at 6 in the morning, the lights were out at 10, making sure, too, those uh, barracks uh, were clean as a whistle. Uh, and because if they weren't, when the Army uh, captain came, they would be in big trouble. They would not be able to go home maybe on a weekend pass or on Saturday night when uh, they would take truckloads of boys down into the local town to see a movie or to a dance. Uh, They would not be able to go or get KP duty. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some of the boys, too, on that barracks, uh, there were selected assistant leaders. They were paid $36, and that leader and assistant leader Their job was to keep the 38 boys in line. And uh, some of the boys, too, they had other jobs, too. Some boys would just be typists, taking uh, care of all those Army records, which are today stored in uh, St. Louis. So any of the children of these CCC boys or relatives who would like to find out where was their dad or uh, where was their uncle, they could be able to get it from St. Louis and... uh, Possibly maybe we could be able to put something uh, on your website how they could get their dad's records. Now, were these uh, camps integrated at the time? Uh, Good question. Um, When I did my book about the Adirondack uh, Civilian Conservation Corps camps, I found that they were segregated. You had white camps, black camps, and there was one other camp, too, that was called uh, veterans camps. But if I go back uh, and tell you that Connecticut and New England was integrated, but you go down south, New York, Pennsylvania, and the rest of the south, they were segregated. When you went out west, like a lot of the boys from Connecticut, they needed workers. So one camp, quite a few of the camps in Colorado had 200 boys. They were all from Connecticut. They would go out there for six months if they wanted you know, another six months, they could sign up uh, for a total of two years. And uh, if I go back into that camp setting, think of those five barracks. Then there was an officer's building where they kept the records, etc. Then there would be a mess hall, which uh, had connected to it the kitchen. So this is where the boys would have their uh, breakfast, 
if they were working in the forest, the food was uh, brought to them uh, by truck, and then they came back, then they would have their dinner, uh, or supper, you call it, uh, in that mess hall, and the boys would all be uh, sitting, six boys to a picnic table, 200 boys, and they could have as much food as they wanted. Then there was also a uh, clinic. So if a boy did get sick, each camp, if you could just imagine this, had an army doctor, just like we have in schools. They have nurses. Mm -hmm. Well, they had an army doctor to take care of uh, illnesses. And if they were really sick, like one of the people you're going to interview, he drove the ambulance, they would take to the nearest army hospital, which was uh, Camp Wright on Fisher's Island. So uh, Peter would drive his um, ambulance all the way to New London, put the boys on the ferry, and go to Fort Wright because they had an army hospital there. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Uh, we're speaking with Marty Podscotch, an author of Connecticut Civilian Conservation Corps Camps, History, Memories, and Legacy of the CCC. We're going to learn more about the experiences of some of these CCC boys still living today, including a 102-year-old West Hartford resident. His story after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up later in the show, we'll get the latest on the budget impasse at the state capitol with CT News Junkie Editor-in-Chief Christine Stewart. But right now we're talking about the CCC. There were 21 Civilian Conservation Corps camps in Connecticut during the Great Depression. Nearly 3 million young men joined the Corps nationwide, learning vital skills while helping support their families. East Hampton, Connecticut resident Marty Podscotch researched the stories of the men from our state who worked in the CCC. He's in the studio with us today to talk about his latest book, Connecticut Civilian Conservation Corps Camps, History, Memories, and Legacy of the CCC. But first, some of those so-called CCC boys are still alive today. Where We Live producer Jeff Tyson went to the home of Michael Popovich to hear about his experience working in the CCC in 1933. Popovich is 102 years old now and lives in West Hartford. Here's his interview. Questions and answers. You, you can ask me a question. I'll see if I can answer. Let's do that. So take me back to your teen years and... Yeah. Uh, and you were born in Waterbury, is that Yes, right? that's right. I was born in Waterbury. What was your hometown like? And tell me about your family. Oh, the family. Well, we had uh, we five sisters, one brother, and myself. I was the older one. We all shipped in together to make the uh, house run. It was a five-acre plot which we owed quite a bit of money on it. <laughs> and, of course, we did all our vegetables and and what uh, fruit and all that sort of stuff just to survive. But, I mean, there was a lot of other people doing the same thing, so we were kind of everybody in the same category. And then during the Depression, how, yeah, how, that, did, how did that affect your family? That, that's it. Right, yeah. Well, I was just about old enough to get a job, but couldn't get in. And my dad couldn't get a job either. Well, he worked there for a while, and then they laid off. Then he went into the WPA. I remember working one day for him because he didn't feel good. But anyway, he got a job later on after I got in 
in the, in the CCC. Yeah. So when did you find out about the, the CCC? Was it through your father? Well, through my, my, my father, yeah. Apparently he knew about it. Yeah, and uh, like I say, he must have talked to some of the other because some of the boys also went. I don't remember their name, but we all started in Waterbury, then went to New Haven, then back to back to New London, and that's where it all started from there. Yeah, and this was your first time away from home? Pardon? Was this your first time away that's from home? That's right, first time away from home. First time I saw a real ocean, too. <laughs> so it was quite a... Quite a rig. I don't know what happened. They picked out me. I I was supposed to distribute all the army shoes. This was all World War One army stuff: yeah. clothes, shirts, jackets, uh, shoes, stockings, and uh, even a campaign hat. Really? Uh, yeah, that was a stupid thing. <laughs> it looked like a like a, a dish upside down. But anyway. About a week or so later, we uh, got on the on the old Liberty truck. Oh, geez, I'll never forget that. It had solid rubber tires, and we drove that. Some guy drove it all the way from from uh, New London all the way up to Danbury, and that's where that's where the camp was. It's adjacent to Squance Pond, okay. and we got there. It was all army stuff, so. We had to put up tents, eight, eight people to a tent. Did you know how to put up a tent that first time? Oh, yeah. Oh, no, we didn't know that. <laughs> it, was, it was a squad tent, they call it. Eight people were in it and uh, got all that together. And, of course, there was all, no houses around or anything. But uh, we made out all right until the rains came. Then, then, then it was a problem. We were because we were on the side of a hill, and the rain would come down, and in between your cot, oh yeah, everything was cots and blankets and everything, and uh, we had little tricks we used to play by poking a stick in the hole in, in the ground and diverting the water to the next guy instead of coming down your way. <laughs> yeah, but we had a lot of a lot of little jokes that we'd play on each other. Yeah. Uh, and, and tell me about the other boys that you were. Were they oh, from all over? Oh, were they oh, yeah, all they, walks of life? They were all over Connecticut, from Connecticut, yeah. But I don't remember any of their names or or where they were from. But uh, I do remember one guy that uh, at night he snored like a son of a gun. So what we what we did is uh, in the middle of the night he picked up the cot and put him right next to the, uh, the Squan's Pond. So if he jumped off of it and right going into the pond. But I, I thought that was a dirty trick, but it worked. <laughs> <laughs> and so what was your day-to-day -day like? What was your oh, schedule? day-to-day. Yeah, of course, you woke up with Reveille. The guy had a whole trumpet there. And we got up and had a breakfast, which was made by a cook there. And, of course, we washed our own mess kits and, and canteens that the they were also army issue, and after that we went to work. The area where we were must have been a forest fire about ten years before, and this whole idea was reforestation. So we had to go up along the trail. There's some trails that were made previously, or we, if there wasn't any, we'd make them. 
and we'd cut cut the woods away, make a trail, and then uh, clear ten feet on each side of the trail of bushes or anything like that. And we had our job was uh, to get rid of it and uh, burn it or whatever. Yeah, mostly burned. Yeah. And if there was a big stone in the way, we'd have to move that. And if it was very big, we'd, we'd actually have to drill a hole and blast it into smaller pieces. And uh, so you learned how to use dynamite. Is yes, that right? That's right. We used to, yeah, dynamite and and uh, what do you call it? Drill a stone by hand. And uh, I was lucky. I I don't know how I got it, but I, we had a small jackhammer, which which was handy and. Or sometimes we just used dynamite, put it underneath the stone, and uh, what do you, well, we used to use it, call it a mud pack, and put mud all around it, and then hide someplace, let it off, and blast it off, and it would roll into the squance pond, you know, from the hill. Yeah. And that was that was an easy job, but uh, most of the work was cutting branches down, and uh, burning them and smoothing out the pa uh, a real path for a truck to go by or a fire truck, but if you want to call it. These skills that you were learning, the, the jobs that you had, yes. were these, these were all new skills for you back home? Yeah, never knew it, never did it before. Yeah. No, a lot of people got hurt because of it. Got hurt. You know, cut with an axe, chopping, uh, trees down or something like that, or shovels and picks and you know, all that re regular construction work during the old ages. <laughs> no, we didn't have any any tractor or anything like that. Yeah. Did you have some training before, or were no, you sort of thrown no, into no, the work? I was too young for that, yeah, <laughs> no. Well, just on a farm, yeah. you always pick and shovel there also. Did the army train you though when they brought you to the camp did they spend some no, time teaching no, you or no they training. threw you into the job you, you go right into the job yeah no training yeah you just they just give you a lot of ideas how to keep safe that's about it mm -hmm. but some of the stuff there was nice i mean the beautiful weather and everything like that you mentioned that this was sort of a, a sad state of affairs for you. When you look back on this time, do you yeah, think yeah. that... Yeah, I mean, it was kind of sad because you were away from home. This is the first time I was ever away from home. And you get kind of lonely by yourself there. Yeah. yeah. What did you do on the weekends? Right. What did you do on the weekends or in the evenings? Oh, oh sing a lot. Sing a lot. Play. There was a fellow that had a banjo or a ukulele or something. But we sang a lot and... Play cards, a lot of cards playing, and uh, baseball. We had baseball out there, a lot of land there in the park, and we, we, that, that was about it. Swimming, we did a lot of swimming in there. Of course, right next to the, right on the pond itself. Oh, yeah, one month, I can't remember, they had a, I don't know if they still have it, the Danbury Fair. We had, we went to the Danbury Fair, the whole bunch of us walked it from the camp to the fair, which is 10 miles <laughs> one way. That's how big the Candlewood Lake is, is yeah. which is man-made. And uh, we had a lot of fun there. Not many people spent money because they didn't have any. <laughs> right. But it was a nice time.
when you look back at your time in the CCC and and when you think about the the CCC as a whole, yeah, the yeah. program, President Roosevelt yes, started yes, it. Yeah, do you start- think it was a good thing for the country? Do you? Do you oh remind? yes, absolutely. It put a lot of people into little jobs, and I think, like I say, a lot of them the first time out from home, and uh, I think it was very educational. No, I wouldn't say profitable because at the end of the week or is it a month, they, uh, they'd give you $5, the rest would go to your parents. Yeah. So that that was kind of a heartbreaker. But, uh, well, you didn't spend too much money out in the woods. No, no one to spend it on. So you were doing it for your families. That's right, right. absolutely, yes, yes. Yeah. I remember after I got discharged, there was no way to get home. So I had a chisel ride all the way from Danbury to Waterbury. You hitched a ride, you said? You hitched the ride, yeah. And that, that was quite a thing. That, yeah. And you're, with Army clothes, a lot of people didn't know where you were. I know that there, you know, the CCC doesn't exist anymore, but I, I know a lot of people advocate that, that, the, that the government or, or, or various states should have these sorts of programs you again. You know what? That would be a good idea, I think, because uh, it, it would take a lot of people, uh, teenagers especially, off the street, and, and jobs that would be uh, uh, helpful for later on because you learn a lot, not only that, uh, how to do it, how to mix with people. And that, that means quite a bit. Along with people. This is where we live. You just heard an interview with 102-year-old Michael Popovich of West Hartford. He sat down with Where We Live producer Jeff Tyson to talk about his days working in the Civilian Conservation Corps 84 years ago. Do you remember stories from family members who worked in the CCC? Have you noticed their work at local state parks? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. I just heard from also uh, Marty Podscott. She's an author of the book, Connecticut Civilian Conservation Corps Camps, History, Memories, and Legacy of the CCC. Um, you were smiling a lot while we were listening to the interview with uh, 102-year-old Michael Popovich. Um, what stands out to you about his story? And you've interviewed lots of these so-called CCC boys. Uh, what stands out is that he still remembers uh, all of these things that has hap- happened to him. A hun- you know, he's 102 years old. And uh, the other boys, too, these stories about how they helped their families. Uh, it, in unbelievable how they had to quit school. And uh, many of them went straight into World War II. They were prepared by the Army. They knew how to make their beds. They knew how to take orders. They were also leaders, too. Many of these boys who, when, when they went into World War II, became sergeants if they were leaders. Um, so those were the big things. And as uh, Michael said, I learned how to get along with each other. They learned skills. They learned surveying, uh, driving trucks, uh, so many different skills or uh, running the office, keeping track of the records or being a cook in the um, uh, mess hall. Uh, many of these boys were sent to army uh, camps, uh, big camps, maybe uh, Fort Dix or to Fort Wright and were taught how to uh, cook for 200 men 
three times a day. I mentioned earlier there were 21 of these CCC camps in Connecticut, but there was one exclusively for for veterans? Yes. Uh, the Niantic camp in 1933 was a veterans camp. Well, it turned out when Hoover was president in 1932, the veterans of World War I were promised a bonus. It was supposed to come in 1940 approximately. But when the Depression hit, these veterans didn't have jobs. So they marched on Washington and they asked President Hoover and Congress, please give us our bonus now. We need it. They had their tents set up. They marched just like we have marchers today in Washington. And Hoover sent General MacArthur, drove them out, shot at them. Some men were even uh, uh, shot and uh, killed. They burned their tents. So the following year, 33, they said, hey, we got a new president. So they marched again. And who do you think Roosevelt sent? Mm -hmm. Eisenhower? No, it was Eleanor. Eleanor drove (laughs) in her limousine there, sat down and talked to the boys. Now, what is the problem? Well, my husband doesn't want any problems, wants to help you out. So he started camps throughout the United States that were just for veterans of World War I and also Spanish-American War. So, uh... The one at Niantic was started out as a veterans camp. Later on, the one at Mohawk for State Forest, too, in 38, got the veterans that were up there uh, working on the Winooski Dam. Mm-hmm. They came down and then worked there at that camp. How many of these CCC boys are around today? To my knowledge, in Connecticut, there are seven that I know that I interviewed for my book, but there are other people. Uh, One of the guys, uh, Gary Potter from uh, Bristol, he just sent me a clipping of a man from Bristol, just died in June. He was also a CCC boy. So I've given, you know, probably a hundred talks throughout the state, but there's still boys that are still alive Mm -hmm. that you know, have stories to tell, and I wish I could be able to uh, gather those stories. And many of the children whose fathers worked in the CCC just would love to know where their father was. Uh, Jody Rell, when I was at the CCC Museum in uh, Stafford Springs, she said, Marty, if I only asked my father what he did, he, she said, he did something in Virginia or North Carolina. So I gave her the uh, directions, how to uh, call up the Army place there in St. Louis. This is an extensive book that you've written. Again, uh, Marty Potscotch here on Where We Live. Uh, His latest book, Connecticut Civilian Conservation Corps Camps, History, Memories, and Legacy of the CCC. We heard uh, a little bit from Michael Popovich. Tell us about um, another CCC boy, uh, Joe Arnold. Joe Arnold has an unbelievable story. His father and uh, mother, they had a house in uh, outside of New York City. Uh, it was the home of uh, the guy who wrote Trees. I think that I shall never see a poem as lovely as a tree. And uh, he had a great roofing business. Uh, then the Depression hit. Joe Arnold's father lost everything. He took the five children and his wife to Connecticut, and he just could not cope with this. He left his family. And Joe uh, was a uh, ninth grader. He said, Marty, I had to quit school. So he'd quit school, got a job working at the Housatonic Meadows in Sharon, Connecticut. And uh, 
After six months, he signed up for uh, Colorado. A lot of these boys, oh boy, to go out west. So he signed up and he stayed there for a year and a half. And uh, every every end of six months, they had a week off. So he'd say, hey, his buddy would say, Joe, let's go down to Mexico. So they went down to the Grand Junction uh, Railroad Terminal there and looked at the boxcars. Oh, this one's going to Mexico. So they would hop on and go to Mexico, come back after six months. His buddy would say, hey, Joe, let's go to San Francisco. So you could just imagine Joe and his buddy sitting on a boxcar going over the Rocky Mountains into San Francisco, seeing this uh, fantastic city, and then losing his buddy, (laughs) and then coming back (laughs) to get back uh, time so they wouldn't be A-W-O-L. So, oh, then he came back after the war. He wanted to get his GED. So he took a test, and Joe said, well, what do I have to do now to get my uh, high school diploma? And she said, Joe, you're not going to get your high school diploma. You're going to college. And he went to um, the beginning college of New Haven College, studied engineering. Later on, he became the head of the department. And the rags to riches Mm -hmm. stories, and all because the the CCC had a great influence on them. And that was a theme that you heard time and time again. Not only were these young boys learning valuable skills outdoors, they were able to send money home to family, they had food to eat, but it led them on a successful course uh, later in life. Right. They were able to, uh, another great guy too, uh, was this poor boy from Norwich. He went to Stafford Springs. And uh, then he went to World War II, got a a degree with the GI Bill, went to Philadelphia to work, came back to Norwich, and he founded Mohegan Sun. Uh, So This was Ralph Sturgis? Ralph Sturgis, yes. And I got his story there in 2007. He was at a reunion at the Stafford Springs uh, Museum, one of the best museums in the whole United States. (laughs) And uh, he said, got his story, and he said, Marty, come down to the... Uh, my office. I'll show you all the carvings I've done in marble. Then found out he had passed away. Mm. But I did, was lucky to get his story down. We just have a few more minutes left, but I, I wanted to ask, uh, the Civilian Conservation Corps ended around 1942. What were the efforts through the years to bring back this kind of program? There have been uh, efforts just here in Connecticut during the 80s. Um, one of the programs was the YCCs, and I've met a few boys and girls who, uh, through uh, high school, they worked in our state parks, building picnic tables, doing trail work, etc. Then I went to Missoula, Montana. I met the Montana CCCs. These are uh, young boys and girls who work for about seven or eight months, and then they get a stipend and plus a place to stay, and they do work on our state parks and national parks. California also has it. So when Jody Rell was governor, she heard about this. She said, I'm going to try it. I think she had about 20 kids for one summer, boys and girls working in the state parks, but because of budget cuts, et cetera, just like our beautiful museum there in Stafford Spring has been uh, sort of closed. It's open. 
If anybody who would be interested in going to it, they could call the DEEP and they will open it on special occasions. We just got a Facebook message from a listener uh, who writes, uh, Donald writes, My father worked on the Merritt Parkway in Fairfield Hills Hospital during the 30s with the Civilian Conservation Corps. Uh, So a lot of people have a connection uh, to this, again, this uh, jobs relief program uh, back during uh, the time of of Roosevelt and the Great Depression. Um, I wanted to thank Marty Podscotch, a historian and author of Connecticut Civilian Conservation Corps Camps, The History, Memories, and Legacy of the CCC. You brought a lot of memorabilia with you. We've taken pictures. We're going to post that on our website. But if someone was listening and they wanted to help get their story, their maybe their grandfather's story uh, to you, how could they contact you? Uh, they could do it two ways. They could call me, 860-267-2442, or uh, by email, my last name, podscotch, P-O-D-S-K-O-C-H, at comcast.net. I should ask before we go... Um, any family connection to the CCC? None at all. <laughs> it was just, uh, I just love gathering these stories. Uh, you know, as I said, I went from fire towers mm-hmm. to the CCC, and now I'm in Rhode Island. If anybody has any parents or family members in Rhode Island, I'm doing that. And I'm also gathering information for a book about traveling to all the 169 towns of Connecticut. Well, you certainly keep busy. We'd love to have you back on. Thank you so so much again, Marty Podscotch. Great to be here. Thanks. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up next, what's happening with budget negotiations at the state capitol? The editor-in-chief of ctnewsjunkie.com, Christine Stewart, will tell us the latest. And how's it impacting your town, your city, your job? We want to hear from you. 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. It's the middle of July, and the Connecticut General Assembly has yet to vote on a new two-year budget. What's happening at the state capitol these days? To tell us more now, we're joined in studio by Christine Stewart, editor-in-chief of ctnewsjunkie.com. Christine, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. It's been a while since I've seen you, but I assume that you're constantly working at the capitol to find out what's happening. So what is happening? I thought there was a vote scheduled today. Uh, yeah, there was supposed <laughs> to be. There is supposed to be a vote scheduled today. So at the end of the, the fiscal year, which was June 30th, uh, you know, basically the, the House Democrats came out with a budget proposal instead of agreeing to do this 90-day temporary uh, mini budget that Malloy proposed. Uh, they came out with their own budget proposal but have been unable to kind of come to an agreement with any of the other parties. Um, essentially, we still have five budgets out there. We we can't agree on any of them. And and so the governor at the moment is running the state by executive order. How unusual is this? I know you've been covering the Capitol for years. I've heard people say they haven't seen this level of dysfunction in a long time. Is that accurate? I you know, it's there's a level of dysfunction, but I think it's also a matter of and you know, House Minority Leader Themis Claritas keeps pointing this out. It's a matter of the numbers are so close. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the House we have seventy nine Democrats to seventy two Republicans and in the Senate for the first time in hundred and twenty five years, we're evenly split between the parties. 
Um, so finding they're they're being forced to find a compromise, and I think finding a compromise is is much harder than having one party rule where mm-hmm. where they can find the votes and and get a budget passed, which was the case for years. Which so Republicans haven't voted for a budget in ten years. So give us an idea of what's on the table. I understand unions voted on a concessions package. We won't know the outcome till later today. Probably in about an hour, we'll we'll know the outcome of that. Um, So the unions voted on a concession package that over two years um, will save the state $1.57 billion. Uh, and so that's that's a part of of this budget discussion, and and that everybody um, aside from the Republicans have assumed that those labor savings are are part of that the budget. Is there a chance this could be rejected? What have you been so hearing? you know? So actually, so this is a really interesting. I guess it gets into like the parliamentary um, people who are wonky about this kind of stuff. Uh, so they could the legislature could adopt. Um, the the union they could ratify the deal if the unions pass it. Uh, House Speaker uh, Joe Arasimwitz has said that's what he would like to happen. It would be the legislature vote on a deal. But uh, what could happen is that, that it could actually sit on the clerk's desk until we reconvene in 2018 in February of 2018, and then the 30 day clock could start ticking, and it could automatically go into effect without a vote. Um, and I, I'm thinking that if they don't have the votes, if they don't have the votes to ratify it, that that's what they're going to do. So what's the point? Right. I know. <laughs> <laughs> what's the point? So this has been like, you know, uh, a re- Republican uh, have uh, Republicans have called for, you know, the legislature to vote on, on union mm-hmm. um, union contracts for years and years and years and. We just don't have a process right now for that. And meanwhile, the Republicans are asking the Malloy administration to release details of this concessions agreement that was voted on. Yes. Um, so we have the the health and the the pension. Um, so we we've seen that side of the agreement, which is really what the state employee bargaining agent coalition. Um, negotiates on behalf of all state employees. What we haven't seen, which is actually where the the larger savings are, is the salaries and the working conditions. Um, So each of the 34, 35 bargaining groups have um, their own salary and working conditions. So there were, you know, 34 other contracts negotiated regarding salaries. And so it's it's those contracts that have not been released yet. You mentioned this idea of a temporary budget. I think it'd be a 90-day budget. Is this yes. something that the House would be amenable to voting on? Because Malloy says he's he's agreeable to it. So I, yeah, the governor is agreeable. The governor would <laughs> love to pass the, this little 90-day um, uh, mini budget. But I don't think that uh, Joe Arasimovs has the votes for it in the House. And I think that's that's the problem. What are you hearing from towns and cities, even social service organizations, that um, they're getting cut and they're worried right. about how they can continue to maintain services? Uh, towns don't even know how much money is coming from the state. Uh, it, it's a, it seems like a really big problem. It's going to be. And, and the problem compounds and it gets even more complicated the longer that this situation draws out. Um, so I, I feel like maybe towards the end of September when some of those big municipal grants are going to be released mm-hmm. is when, you know, unless the social service agencies can put enough pressure uh, on lawmakers to take action on even some temporary relief. Um, the governor's asking for temporary relief because he doesn't believe that the legislature is going to be able to get a budget deal together 
um, as as quickly as they may want to. And the governor was even meeting with social service uh, providers yesterday as a way to try to ramp up pressure on the <laughs> yes. legislature to do something? Yes. Yeah. So he's kind of putting the full court press on and, and pointing out these nonprofits are, are losing, you know, are are struggling to serve. There's about 650,000 Connecticut citizens that need state services on a daily basis. Mm. And what does this do in terms of uh, when we're talking about state aid? So in September, uh, towns and cities are expecting the state aid to come in. And how will that balance out. Yeah, so uh, various grants are given out on, uh, you know, a quarterly or a, a monthly basis and so the big uh, education grants are coming due at the end of September. Mm. Um so currently under this executive order, um those are not part of the executive order. Those are not being funded, so they have to figure out something. We're speaking with Christine Stewart, editor-in-chief of ctnewsjunkie.com. The budget impasse is still happening, and we're curious uh, how it's impacting you. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Can you give us an idea? I should have asked you earlier, Christine, about uh, the gap that they need to fill for this two-year budget um, and how it's going to grow in the coming years, yeah. So that is the uh, so that's the reason this executive order is so draconian is that um, Malloy doesn't want to increase that gap. Um, so we have a five point one billion dollar budget gap over the the next two years uh, that that we need to fill. And, and you know the labor concession package is part of you know part of helping fill fill that gap. And there's also some spending cuts and you know some Democrats. I feel like Joe Arison was is kind of in a similar situation to Mitch McConnell mm. in, in that he's got people in his party uh, on the far left and in the center um, who are not in favor of using tax increases or revenues to kind of fill some of that gap. When we say tax increases, uh, what do you mean in terms of revenue that the Republicans do not want to add to people's uh well, even Malloy does not want to. I mean, re- revenue even to the governor is like, nope, don't want to add any more revenue. Um, so the revenue that the House Democrats have been proposing is an increase in the sales tax from 6.35% to 6.99%. And it would also allow restaurants, um, towns to agree to allow restaurants to raise an additional 1% on top of that um, from food and beverages. Now, if that were to happen, Connecticut would still be competitive compared to other states with their sales tax. I believe that it would be competitive um, with other states, but uh, you know, the restaurant industry is is a little bit leery of adding any sort of tax on top of what they currently have. You said the governor doesn't want to see increased revenue. The Republicans don't want to vote for it. But how do we how do we right I know. get rid of this <laughs> you know more than two billion dollar hole? Yeah, no, I, it's it's really hard to do that with, without any additional revenue, mm-hmm. and you know there there's um I, I guess there's certain types of revenue that that might be okay. Like mm-hmm. the governor has proposed increasing um, some of the conveyance tax on on real estate transactions for homes that are valued at over eight hundred thousand. So apparently that's an okay one, okay revenue increase. But um, sales taxes and large scale income taxes are off the table. Now, there were debates on legalizing marijuana in Connecticut. Could that ever happen? You know, I think that that's pretty much off the table, off at, the table. At, at the moment. Tolls? Uh, that is also <laughs> off the table. They were one vote short on that. So, 
So what what else is on the anything anything um, that could at, oh other revenue streams yeah. um they may want to take away your property tax credit um mm. so anyone who makes under a hundred thousand dollars a year they're going to want to take away which no one wants a few to hundred dollars that. that you get yeah <laughs> what does this mean for the upcoming election. Yeah, so I think that there are certain caucuses that are thinking about the the 2018 election and certain caucuses that aren't thinking about the 2018 election. And I think on a repeated basis, um, House Speaker Joe Arison would have said, you can't think about 2018 if you're going to do the right thing now. Well, I don't feel any better after speaking with you. (laughs) (laughs) Christine Stewart, editor-in-chief of ctnewsjunkie.com. So you'll still be waiting as many of the Capitol Press Corps to see what happens in the next couple of days and weeks. Oh, we'll be here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we appreciate you coming by to explain this to all of us. Thank you so much, Christine. Thank you. Today's show is produced by Jeff Tyson. Thanks to Lydia Brown and our WNPR intern, Tim Cohen. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. You can learn more about the show, wmpr.org slash where we live for more. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.